Turn your Bibles to First uh, John. We're going to start in chapter 5, verse 13, and then we will also read chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. We're beginning a, a four-part series this morning in First John, and obviously in four weeks you cannot do the entire book, so we're selecting various passages in First John in the order as they, as they appear. And this morning we're going to do a little bit of overview, big picture, kind of set the table for what's ahead for us in this particular letter Our series is called Gospel Assurance in a Deconversion Age. So I'm going to explain here what what I mean by deconversion, so it's not a term that I came up with. There are two reasons for this series. So I've heard John Piper say on a number of occasions over the years that after he would preach, when his people would come to talk with him after the service, the most common struggle, the most pressing struggle that members of his church would bring to him is this issue of the assurance of salvation. So he says, and he has said many times, that if there is one particular issue that members of his church struggled with, it was assurance. How can I be sure that I actually know God? Or how can I be sure that God actually knows me? So that's reason number one, why I think this is a crucial issue. And and I know that there are those who sit in this room who actually struggle with the assurance of salvation. For years, I was one of those people. And those doubts will still occasionally pop up their head in my mind and heart, and I have to be quick to dispel them through the good news of Jesus. So that's reason number one. Reason number two is a few years ago, I read a a couple of articles by Dr. Michael Kruger, who serves as the president of RTS Charlotte, Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, and he's a professor of New Testament there, who Dr. Kruger has almost a really great last name, Except he spells it and pronounces it wrong. You won't know how many times in my life I have been called Kruger. So um, he almost has a fantastic name. And uh, I feel so bad for him that he's so close. He, on his personal website, he, he, he's written a couple of articles over the last few years. I think the first one was in 2020 on this issue of deconversion. And the first one I read, I'll give you the title here, The Power of Deconversion Stories, How Jen Hatmaker, you may, you may or may not know who she is, but she, she was a prominent woman within evangelicalism, teaching, um, how Jen Hatmaker is trying to change minds about the Bible. And then he has another one that I really like, a couple years later, The Deconversion Story of Sauron. Five Lessons to Learn from the Lord of the Rings. Um, Really helpful, though, insightful in illustrating what it actually looks like and and makes it tangible for us to think through. How does does one move from believing in Jesus to apostatizing and not believing in Jesus or believing in 
a Jesus that is different than the one that's actually portrayed and presented to us in the scriptures. And that's what deconversion means. You have someone who once is very visible within the church, who believes, professes to believe exactly what we believe, and they're actually very vocal in their belief of the truth of Christianity, the truth of Christ. So these aren't members who are introverted and sit off on the margins and don't say anything. These are particular members who are very well known within a community of faith who are very vocal in saying, yes, that Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father, and it's because of what he did on our behalf that we can ever, we can even know the Father. So they're very vocal, very visible on the truths of the gospel, and then suddenly they become enlightened, they become enlightened, and they deny the truth that they once professed to believe. But what makes this so so dangerous is that they, they then do not go off on, away from Christianity. They actually retain their voice within evangelicalism and now try to convert you, those in the pew, those who have remained in the church, to believe what they now believe and put behind this old, stale Christian gospel. That's what we mean by deconversion. A a, a more biblical word for deconversion is apostasy. Gospel assurance in an age of apostasy. So many, many Christians wrestle, already wrestle with assurance of salvation. And then you add to that this common struggle of believers to be sure that they actually know God. You add to that very visible former leaders within the church who are now actively trying to deconvert you away from that Christian gospel and to put doubt in your mind that it's actually true. You add that to the common struggle of assurance or salvation and you have a recipe for disaster. And the reason that this series is on 1 John addressing this particular issue is because there's no book in Scripture that I think is better equipped to handle that particular problem. And I think First John addresses both reasons for our series, the common struggle and then what's happening with those who have left the faith. So our two primary texts this morning are chapter 5, verse 13, and then chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Let me just give a parenthetical side here. My, my approach is, is not, when, I, when we look at these texts, my approach is not to comment on every part of the text. But everything I do say about parts of the text is informed by every part of the text. Does that make sense? So I'm commenting on particular things within the text, and everything that I say about those particular things is informed by everything else in the text. So let's let's read, first of all, 1 John 5, verse 13. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, 
that you may know that you have eternal life. And then chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now, a couple of comments on First John 5.13. That's John's purpose statement for the letter. Let me give you my interpretive translation of that particular verse. So let me read it this way. John says, I have written all of this to you to reassure you that if you believe in the Messiah, the Son of God, you have certainly been given eternal life. So do you see what he's doing there? He says, I I write these things to you who believe, who believe in the name of the Son of God. So the issue there is not what? Whether or not they believe, he's saying, guess what? I'm writing to you who believe in the name of Jesus, the Son of God, for this purpose, that you may know that you have eternal life. So John wants these readers to know full assurance that because they are believing in Jesus, they actually know the Father. So we're going to look at this under three headings. The threat to assurance, the pursuit of assurance, and the object of assurance. And we'll spend most of our time on on the third one. So let's look at the threat to assurance. The threat to assurance. So we've, we've seen that John's objective is that those who are believing in Jesus might know that they have eternal life. So the question is, why does John have this objective? Doesn't that question come to you? I mean, I'm reading that. He gives us the objective. I'm writing to those who are believing. You all are believing in the name of the Son of God, Jesus, and I'm writing to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. Why that objective? So in in John's letter, what is the threat to having assurance? That's that's really the question that this objective that he gives to us raises. If that's his objective, it must mean that their assurance of knowing God the Father is actually under threat. So what is it that's threatening assurance? their assurance. Now, uh, research, theological research over the last 15 years has been really, really helpful in coming to terms with what John is doing with that purpose statement. And it demonstrates, much of it demonstrates that 1 John was addressed to early Jewish Christians in the aftermath of a distinctly Jewish, Jewish argument that led to a split. So he's, 
He's writing to a Jewish audience of Christians who in their corporate setting were experiencing conflict over an argument among other Jews as to who Jesus actually was. So the the question was, in this intramural debate, the question was, is Jesus the Messiah or isn't he? And they were split over this particular question. And this is what John is talking about. If you look at chapter 2, verse 18, this is what John is talking about here. So he gives us insight into what was happening within this, this, this particular church. Verse 18, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now there are many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. So he's talking about that internal debate. Is Jesus Christ the Messiah or not? And those who said he's not left. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Skip down to verse 21. I write to you, so here he is, I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. What do you think the truth is here? That Jesus is the Messiah. That Jesus is actually the long-promised Messiah, the Son of God, come to deal with sin and to bring us out of the other side in knowing then the Father. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Uh, Yeah, Jesus was a historical figure, but no, his, his work was not redemptive. His blood was not covering any particular sin issue that we have. He's not that kind of Messiah. Verse 22, who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the, is the Christ? See, that's the issue. This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. So what John's doing there is he's saying this other, this faction, very vocal within the church, We're denying that Jesus is the Christ, and therefore, John says, by doing so, they're also denying the Father and the Son. They're a package deal. Can't have one without the other. Verse 23, no one denies the Father, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Look at verse 26. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. So, vocal, visible members of the church come to a different conclusion as to who Jesus is, and now they're trying to deceive. They're they're not leaving and going off and doing their own thing. Their intention is to deconvert those who remain in the church, and to teach them false, deceptive things. So, here's why we stress this. 1 John is not 
intended to test the reality of the faith of his readers. It's, it's not testing their faith. The tests that he gives are to help them see how deceptively wrong and destructively wrong those who were once in their midst, who are now trying to convert them to follow and to believe what they believe, it is enabling them to look at that context, those individuals, and know, guess what? What they say is not true because they actually do not know the Father because they deny Jesus as the Messiah. That's the issue of the test. So, 1 John is meant to assure them that they've already passed the test because they are believing that Jesus is the Messiah. I'm writing to you who believe in Jesus, the Son of God, so that you may what? Know that you have eternal life. So here's the bottom line. Assurance is threatened when our eyes wander away from the gospel. It's really the issue here. Our assurance is threatened when our eyes wander away from the gospel. So you remember the scene? Um, the disciples are out on a boat, and uh, Jesus comes walking toward them, and they think it's a ghost at first. And Jesus says, you know, don't be afraid. It's me. And what does Peter do? He says, command me to come out in the water, and I'll come. And so Jesus says, yeah, come on, come on out here. Use different words. And Peter goes out on the water and he's walking and he's looking at Jesus, but the storm around him, the waves, Matthew says, what does Peter begin to do? He he begins, there's threatening things happening all around him. And he begins to turn his eyes off the place of safety, of stability, of surety. And he begins to look at what's making all the noise, what's doing all the movement. Jesus is standing still, Peter's walking toward him, but there's noise and movement all around him, and as he moves his gaze off of Jesus, he begins to sink. False teaching can do that. False teaching is so formed, so scripted, so easy to listen to that it can divert our gaze away from the only one who can hold us, who can stabilize our faith. And, and our sin can do that. That's next week. We're going to look at how our sin can do that and what's the good news for us in our sin So so John's purpose is to reset our eyes on the gospel. That's John's purpose in this letter. When my my children were young, did this, I don't know how many times, hopefully not a lot, but I've, you you know, have you ever grabbed, gently grabbed the face of your child who is distraught and 
you force them to look at you. And you say, look at me. I love you. That's what John's doing. There's, there's noise, there's movement all around. We live in a world of uncertainty, and there's uncertainty within. And the only place where we can find certainty, stability, is for God in the gospel to grab our, gently grab our head and say, look at me. This is how I love you. And this is how you know I have loved you because I have given you my son. And John actually does this later on in the epistle. So that's the threat to our assurance. Let's look at the pursuit of assurance, the pursuit of assurance. Look at 5.13 again. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, as, as someone who is an American Christian, this is something that if I'm not careful, I easily neglect. I fail to recognize it and then allow it to inform my understanding of, of what the writers of Scripture is, are actually doing. Paul does this in Philippians 1.6 where he says, and I am sure, so he's writing to the church at Philippi, and he's, he's telling them his confidence. Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So my, I'm, I am wired to hear that and immediately think the you there is singular, it's me. So I hear that, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, Dan Kruver, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's the way I hear it. That's not what Paul's saying. The you there is what? It's plural. So he's, he's writing to the church at Philippi, this church, and he's, he's saying that his confidence is that God will complete the work that he began in the church of Philippi. Now, by doing that, of course, it has individual application because he's doing it for each member within the church, but the focus, the the stress is upon what God's doing in the church itself. So 1 John 5.13, I write these things to you. To you, the church, who are believing, the faithful church, who are believing in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So this is a big reason why we gather. Why we gather corporately on the Lord's Day. Because it's how God gets his work done in the church. When the word is read and sung and the word is preached, That is how God gets his work done in the church. This is why it's so essential. It's a necessity that we gather together to to pray the word, to read the word, to sing the word, and to hear the word 
proclaimed. So when, when John says, I write these things to you, he's, he's, wanting, the, he's wanting them to realize that the pursuit of, of assurance is a corporate pursuit. It's a corporate pursuit. Now, there's some personality types in here. My wife's one of them. Never doubts. Never doubts. Can't stand it. Because my personality loves to doubt. It's what I do, do best. I love to doubt. It's just the way I'm wired. But my wife's not wired that way. And it's a good thing. Because if we were both wired that way... Um, there would, it would, yeah, that's enough to say about that. We have different personality types in this room, and some of us are just wired to doubt. We, I'm introspective, and so I'm always analyzing what's going on in this heart of mine. Is my, what, you know, what's my faith really sincere? Is my faith, my repentance, you know, real, genuine enough? I mean, those are the kind of questions that I love to ask myself all the time. I've had people say to me, you know, when, when they have, they're just getting to know me, they'll say, you know, you, you don't talk a lot. And I'm like, oh, yes, I do talk a lot in my own head. I'm constantly talking to myself, trying to talk myself out of things and trying to say, this is what is true. This is what you, this is what you believe. The, the pursuit of assurance is a corporate pursuit. There's a member of our church um, many months ago. We got together for coffee and he started crying and bringing up this issue of assurance. And here we are, two members of this Heritage Bible Church hearing the same sermons week after week, the same, singing the same songs. And so what I was able to do is say, what do you believe? Here's what you and I believe and to articulate to him with much care and concern the wonders of the gospel. The clearer we are on the good news of the gospel corporately, the more assurance will be fostered within our members individually. Did, did you notice, did you notice what happened in our order of worship this morning? This is where I want you to, I want to just point something out here. So we sang the song, Come Ye Sinners, Poor and Needy, which is a song of a confession of our need. By singing that song, we are confessing our need as sinners. The chorus then goes, I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me. He will embrace me in his arms. In the arms of my dear Savior, oh, there are 10,000 charms. And then Trent prayed for our church, and a large portion of his prayer was, an acknowledgement to God of our need of grace. So we sang, we confessed our need, 
in his prayer, he acknowledges our need corporately for the grace and mercy to be found in Christ. And then when Trent finished his prayer, what does it say in the order of worship? We have the assurance of pardon. And then we read together Psalm 32, 1-5. to And the last words of that psalm, those verses, is, You forgave the iniquity of my sin. So you see what we just did there this morning? We... We practiced the pursuit of assurance. Acknowledging our need, we always have it. Confessed our need because we're always needy. And the scriptures then gave us our assurance of pardon as those who confess our need and confess Jesus Christ as a body of believers. So, as a church, be thankful for this and think intentionally about why we do, why we structure the service the way we do, that this pursuit of assurance is built right into the way that we do church. And as we are aware of this, and we think about what we're doing with intention of engaging in what is supposed to be transpiring and why we're saying and singing and praying the things that we're, 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 we're saying, we're praying that our assurance will be strengthened. We, we, are, we are helping each other rest and rejoice in Jesus. That's what we're doing. That's the pursuit of assurance. Now let's look at the object of assurance. Look at 1 John 1, verses 1 to 4. Now, notice what John does here. I mean, this is a letter, and he, he, he wastes no time getting to the only place assurance is found. Knowing what his objective is at the end, now we know this is why he did this. He, he wastes no time, no introductory comments. He's just, bang, paragraph. Here's, here's where assurance is found. Here's where it's located. Here's... It's found in the apostolic gospel. So notice the personal pronouns as I read. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. So you notice the the absolute certainty that John gives in the very opening of this letter to this these believers when his objective is that they would know that they have eternal life. He puts their gaze on the only place it can go for assurance. We looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. 
So the we there is, it's, it's not the editorial we, it's an apostolic we. When he says we there, he's referring to the apostles. We the apostles. We witnessed this. We heard, we saw, we looked upon, we touched. He's engaging all of the senses of the apostles. So this is the apostolic we. And, and what did the apostles witness and proclaim? Look at verse 1. End of verse 1. We have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. You see, the, the, when you hear the word word there, don't think of it in terms of John 1.1. 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. It's not what, Paul's, what, not what John's doing here. Think of word here as message of life. Concerning the message, the proclamation of life. Verse 2, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with, with the Father. So John's stress is on the good news of the gospel. That's where Paul puts his stress. And I'm going to give... I'm going to give the ending away for each of the next three sermons in this series. Isn't this what the gospel does? It gives away the ending. Isn't that what Christianity does? It gives away the ending. Isn't that what we preachers do week after week? We give away the ending. And I'm, I'm going to give away the ending here because this is what John does in this letter. He doesn't say, spoiler alert. He just, he launches, he doesn't care. He launches right in and gives you the end of the story because that's what the gospel provides and that's what Christianity does. The, the gospel treats us like children who want to hear the same story over and over again. Daddy, tell me again. Tell me again. Okay, I'll tell you, tell you again. Oh, there is it again. Tell me again. Uh, Melissa and I went on an Alaskan cruise three weeks ago. And um, my favorite thing was not something I was anticipating. So we, 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 our room, we had a... We had a, um, a deck, a porch, and because Alaska is bright most of the time, you had to close it, man, it made the room black, you could sleep. And I remember that first morning, I got up and I walked over, grabbed the curtain, pulled it open. I don't know what I was expecting, but I pulled it open and I saw white-capped mountains popping up out of the ocean. And I remember my breath was taken away. So you know what my favorite thing in that cruise was? Every morning, I would would joyfully throw my feet on the floor and run to the window, and I would pull that back to see, what am I going to see this time? And that was my favorite thing because it always brought a sense of wonder because of what I was seeing. That's what the gospel does. The gospel is of such a quality of news 
there is such goodness to it, there is such wonder to be found in it, the glories of the gospel are so massive that to look at the gospel is to experience wonder morning after morning after morning. G.K. Chesterton says, because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They, they always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he's nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic, automatically, it may not be an automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never gotten tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have grown, we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. The gospel is God saying, look at it again. Look at Jesus again. You need assurance? Look at Jesus again. Here he is. Here he is. Now, John puts a focus on a particular aspect of the gospel in his epistle. And it's not what, so when he's describing what they've seen and heard and touched and felt, he, he's, he, he has not in his mind the incarnation. He actually has that as well as the resurrection in mind. Let me show you why I say that. There are four key words here. Touched, hands, seen, manifest. Touched. Verse 1, that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched. Remember Luke 24, the disciples were going, two disciples were going to the Emmaus, and Jesus comes alongside them and starts talking. They don't know who he is. And eventually he reveals himself, himself to them. And then they're like, wow, didn't our hearts burn within us while he was talking with us all the way here? And you know what they immediately did? They go back to Jerusalem. So they walk all the way to Emmaus. Jesus reveals, this is who I am. I'm actually, I've, raised, I've been raised from the dead. And they're like, oh, I'm going back to Jerusalem. They go all the way back to Jerusalem. And it says they go and find the disciples who are hidden away in a room. And here's what Luke 24, 36 says. As they were talking about these things, so they're, they're telling the disciples what just transpired As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do you, why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. 
touch me and see. So the language that Jesus is using with the disciples is to see him and to touch him. I really am raised from the dead. I really have come back from what I did on the cross. What I did on the cross was absolutely effective. I did what I set out to do. Touch me and see me. For I have come back from the dead. Hands. Remember in John 20, Thomas says, unless I see the nail prints in his hands, I'm not believing. And then, eight days later, Jesus shows up, and you know what he says to Thomas? Here, touch my hands. Touch my hand. Take your hand and touch my hand. Look at me. And when Thomas does that, what does he say? My Lord and my God. This is good news. I can imagine Thomas going, Show me again. Show me again. And then the word manifest. John says this, this, this eternal life which was with the Father was made manifest. In John 21, this is after the resurrection. It says, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples. The word revealed there is the same word manifest. He revealed himself as the resurrected Christ once again. Verse 14 says, this now, the third time that Jesus was revealed, manifest to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So John himself connects this manifestation, this revealing with Jesus actually being raised from the dead. And that's what John is talking about here. John is talking about the apostles having seen and touched and interacted with the resurrected Christ. Now notice, this is beautiful, and this is what we're going to get to next week, but he says in verse 2, we testify and, to, and proclaim to you the eternal life. This, this resurrected Christ is himself the eternal life. He's the age to come who has now broken into the present, into this fallen, fallen, passing away world. And he says, which was with the Father. That phrase, with the Father, is not the last time that John will reference it here in this first letter. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Who is this advocate with the Father? It's the resurrected Christ. Two weeks ago, two very prominent PCA pastors died on consecutive days. You may have heard of it. Uh, I think it was May 18th, Harry Reeder died. And then the very next day, May 19th, Tim Keller died. And if, if you were to ask the Apostle John where Reader and Keller are right now, here's what I think John's answer would be. 
They are with the one who is with the Father. They are with the one, the resurrected one, who is with the Father. You want to know where Harry Reader and Tim Keller are right now? As we hear the word proclaimed, they are with the one who is with the Father. And that makes all the difference in whether or not we come to a sure confidence that we know the Father. We know we know the Father because we believe in the one who died for us, was raised for us, and ascended for us, and is with the Father for us. That's gospel assurance in a deconversion age. And that's the focus of these next three sermons. Let's pray. Father, thank you for making these things known to us, for not hiding these things from us, by giving us the scriptures that we might know that we have eternal life because we believe in Jesus, the Son of God. And so we, we affirm afresh that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And now may your Spirit move that reality deeper into our hearts to the praise of your glorious grace to us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.